Our Heavenly Father, we're standing before your throne this morning, and we're acknowledging that we are weak. And Father, we are asking that through your word this morning, you might speak your truth and your grace and your mercy to your people so that we might be filled with the gospel of Jesus Christ for the sake of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning I have three simple thoughts for your consideration before we go to the table together this morning. Those three thoughts in order are these. Number one, love your enemies. Number two, loving your enemies is hard. And number three is loving your enemies is possible. Sounds simple, right? Hopefully we're going to dig a little deeper beyond these. First point, love your enemies. Now we need to look at two words in this verse, in this phrase, love your enemies. We need to define from a Christian perspective what we mean by the word love. We have a lot of different ideas of what love means. Even my young children, my oldest, they're learning words and they're learning the meaning of love. And so the very first time that my oldest Graham told me that he loves me, of course, it melted my heart during devotions. He looks up at me and he says, Daddy, I love you. Well, then he proceeded to tell me that he also loves his blanket and he also loves his toy from Burger King. And I was immediately equated with a toy from Burger King and a blanket. But I knew what he meant. We need to look at what this word love means from the Bible. And if you spent any time studying this, you know that there are many different Greek words that are used in the New Testament for the word love. And here in this verse, the word used is agape. And agape love means that you are deciding willfully and intelligently to put someone else's interest above your own. It means that you are counting the other person's needs greater than your own. The biblical definition of love reflects an inward attitude and an outward action. Martin Luther King, he preached a sermon on this passage, Loving Your Enemies, in 1957 in Montgomery, Alabama. And he said this about love. He said, in the final analysis, love is not the sentimental something that we talk about. It's not merely an emotional something. Love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. Listen again to that familiar passage from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. You see, the biblical idea, the biblical definition of love is a determined, decided, and intelligent act of service. So this is what we are to do. Who are we to do it to in this verse? To whom? Our enemies. Who are our enemies? We are commanded to love not just our neighbor in this passage, but we are commanded also to love your enemy. 
Now, in this room, we all have an enemy somewhere on the spectrum because we've all experienced conflict. And on this spectrum of enemies, some of those enemies may be very great. It may literally be someone who has tried to kill you, who has abused you, who has tried to destroy you. And on the other end of the spectrum, your enemy may even be a family member, maybe a spouse. It may even be something as simple as a child, your own son or your own daughter, that when you come home from work and what you want to do is you want to exercise or you want to sit on the couch and watch TV, but that little bundle of joy wants to play with you and he is an enemy of your time. And we know this because our hearts fight against this sometimes. And what Jesus is calling us to do on this spectrum from the greatest of our enemies to the least of our enemies and everyone in between, we are called to love them with this 1 Corinthians love. And then Jesus gives us a list of what this would look like in verses 38 through 42. He gives us several examples, several illustrations that that he applies. The first one that he tells us there, he says is, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. Now commentators point out that to slap the right cheek with the right hand is a backhanded slap. And this means that it's not necessarily intended to physically injure you, but it's actually an insult. So what Jesus is telling us there is that our spirit, those who follow Jesus should remain open to reconciliation, should remain open to relationships to those who insult us. The second illustration or example that Jesus gives here, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now you know the people living during these biblical times, they didn't have three closets full of clothes. They had about one pair of shoes and maybe one or two changes of clothes and their tunic would have been their undergarment that they wore underneath their cloak or their robe. And according to Mosaic law, you could take someone's tunic, but you could not take their cloak because it was their covering. It was their blanket that kept them warm at night. And Jesus says, the Mosaic law says to give them your tunic, you should also give them your coat. He is telling you that you have to love even those who would try to take away your possessions. And then what does he say? He says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, if you were a Jew living in the first century, and you were told to love your enemies, you know who would immediately come to mind? It would be the Romans. Because you were being oppressed uh, by the Roman Empire at this time. And under Roman law, a Roman soldier could come to any Jewish citizen and demand that they carry their equipment, their sword, their shield, a mile. And Jesus says, I don't want you to just carry the very equipment that they use for oppression one mile when forced to do so. I want you to carry their equipment a second mile of your own initiative. So Jesus says, you're even to love those who oppress you those who persecute you, those who torture you. And then he gives us this last illustration. 
showing that we're to give generously, bearing even our neighbor's burdens. Now, what does this look like on a contemporary context? One of my favorite books is Unbroken. Probably many of you have read it because it was on the New York Times bestseller list. It was written by an author, Laura Hillenbrand, and it tells the story of a World War II veteran uh, by the name of Louis Zamperini. And in 1943, he was shot down over the Pacific waters. He uh, and only a few others survived this crash, and they were afloat on the ocean for 47 days. Uh, Only two of them survived, and when they survived, they were taken into a POW camp for two and a half years. Louis Zamperini was tortured, was beaten, was humiliated, was broken. He was eventually set free. He returned home to his wife, Cynthia. He suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder. He became an alcoholic and had a horrible marriage to the extent that the only thing that he really thought about was returning back and killing one of his main oppressors, a man by the name of, a nickname, The Bird. And he thought day and night about killing the bird. So that even one night, he woke up to his wife screaming because he was straddling his wife, choking her because he was dreaming that the bird was trying to kill him. He was shocked, and so was she. She filed for divorce. But then one of her friends told her that she needed to go hear a young evangelist in 1949, a young evangelist by the name of Billy Graham. So she went and she heard Billy Graham preaching and she gave her life to Christ and she resolved to love Louie and to not divorce him. She pleaded with him to go and hear Billy Graham. He resisted and finally gave in and went and heard Billy Graham preach for the first time. He heard Billy preach a sermon on sinfulness and all of us being a sinner. And Louis said his heart cried out, I'm a good person, I'm not a sinner. But when he went home, he realized that was a lie. He would go back again and give his life to Christ. the power of the gospel, he would overcome his addiction. He would love his wife well. And in 1950, he would return to Japan to the prison where he was held to face some of the guards, the soldiers who had tortured and beaten him and preach a message of forgiveness through the cross of Jesus Christ. And even more to their surprise, he went around to them and hugged them with a smile. Louis Zamperini loved his enemies. Now, I don't know about you, and some sermons would end here with this inspiring story, this challenge to love your enemies, to go out and try harder and give you this great big pep rally. And that may work for a few days, but if you're like me, after a few days, you're going to struggle to love your enemies. It's really hard. If I were to hire a film crew and let them follow you around in your life this week, I bet that they would record some instances of you not loving your coworkers so well, your friends so well, or your family so well. I bet even some of you, as I've mentioned this word enemy, can even think of someone specific in your mind. 
it is hard to love your enemies. We don't need to water down what Jesus is commanding of his followers. His definition of what it means to love blows away our own ideas of what it means. And this is why Jesus says, you have heard it said. He is not saying it is written, expressing that it is in the Bible, but actually the teachers of the law had said they tried to make it palpable that you could love your neighbor so they had excused you of not loving your enemy. You see, we try to minimize the law of God to make it doable, to feel better about ourselves. So Jesus comes to the scribes, to the Pharisees, to the teachers of the law, to those who are moral, and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he tell them in verses 17 through 20? He tells them, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And then he gives them a list. He gives them six examples. He, th- he says, you are not supposed to murder. And you think you've got that one covered. I've not murdered anyone. And Jesus says, I tell you, if you have been angry at someone, you are guilty of murder. And then he goes on to adultery and you say, okay, I'm okay there. I haven't committed adultery. And he says, if you have looked lustfully as someone who is not your spouse, then you have committed adultery. You see, Jesus doesn't lower the bar. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if we listen to the words of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, we are crushed. You know, C.S. Lewis was accused by a critic of not liking the Sermon on the Mount. And so C.S. Lewis, in his C.S. Lewis way, responded with this. As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. After all, who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? If you're feeling the sledgehammer this morning, you're listening to Jesus. Loving your enemies is hard, but it's harder than you think. And that's where I want to go on the second point. Loving your enemies is hard. Jesus tells them in verse 46 and 47 that even the tax collectors and even the Gentiles care about their family and friends. Now, he's not comparing them to an IRS agent. He's comparing them to tax collectors. They were traitors. They were working for the Romans, and they were cheating their brothers and sisters monetarily. They were considered unclean and not allowed to go into the temple. And who were the Gentiles? You know, they called them the dogs, and it was not a compliment. Um, And Jesus tells them, you are no worse than these tax collectors and these Gentiles. Do you know why? Because of your spiritual pride and your moral superiority, you think that you are so much better than the tax collectors and Gentiles. He says, I've got news for you. You are not. You are the same as the tax collectors and Gentiles. And in the sermon that James preached last week on anger, do you know what it means to call someone a fool 
or to call someone a nobody, a moron. It means that you are literally looking down on that person when you are angry at them. It's a slow burn. It's a dislike. It's a distaste. When you look at someone, it is that feeling that you are less important and you are less worthy than me. We struggle to love our enemies because we look down at them from a position of moral superiority. You look at someone who has offended you or committed a heinous crime and you know what our heart's cry is. I would never do that. Jesus is telling you here in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry, you are guilty of the same root sin as a murderer, and you are no better. The feeling inside of you is the same seed in the heart of a murderer. One commentator says, think of it this way, the whole oak tree is in the acorn. The whole tree is there, it's just in its infancy. The same seed that is present in an actual murderer is present in you. The seeds of the worst sin live inside me and live inside of you. And apart from God's restraining grace, that would be me. When you realize that, when you realize that the only reason that you don't commit some sins is because of the grace of God keeping it dormant in your own heart, you realize that no one is really good and you realize how bad you might be. George Whitfield, the English evangelist, knew this very well and he practiced loving his enemies. At one point in his ministry, he received this very critical letter about his ministry and about him and about his life. And this is how he responded. It was brief, but it was very courteous. He said, I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying against me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. (laughs) Do you feel the sledgehammer in the Sermon on the Mount? Do you see the crushing ethic of loving your enemy. If you do, then you're in a perfect place to hear the third point this morning. Loving your enemies is possible. How? Look at verse 45. It says to love your enemies and to pray for them so that you will be sons of your heavenly Father. Does that mean if you do this, you'll be accepted by God? No. It means if you do this, You're exhibiting the character of your Father. You are already accepted by grace. But as you are adopted into His family, you begin to love like He loves. And how does He love? He tells us in these few verses, He tells us that He sends the sun and the rain to the good farmer and to the bad farmer. His love has no end. And He has been loving His creation ever since the beginning of time. 
and even after the fall, it was his love that prevented him from destroying Adam and Eve on the spot. It was his love that prevented him from wiping out the entire creation and saving Noah and his family. It was his love that called Moses to go into Egypt. It was his love that harnessed all the forces of nature to set his people free. It was his love that sent prophet after prophet to the people of Israel. It was his love that sent his only begotten son to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. He is the Sermon on the Mount. Look at Jesus. When He was insulted, when He was accused before the high priest and Pilate, what did He do? He remained silent. When they struck Him, when they put nails in His hands, when they dropped Him in the ground on a splintery cross, what did He do? He prayed for them. He prayed for His enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. And when we understand, when we understand Romans 5, 6-11 through 11 that says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we understand that on the cross, Jesus died for enemies. And when we understand that we are those enemies, it becomes powerful. To the extent that you know that you are an enemy adopted into the family of God, loved by a holy God, will be the extent that you can love your enemies. If you are struggling to love an enemy, it is because you are struggling with the love of God for yourself and a knowledge of your sin. Do you realize that on the cross, angels were waiting and Jesus only had to utter one word, go. And Michael would have led the army, wiped everyone away, and taken Jesus off the cross. Do you know what held him there? It was his love. It was his love for you and for me. And when we realize that we are enemies, we are adopted enemies, we are loved enemies, it changes us, it transforms us. When you realize that you are no different than your brother, when you realize you are the prodigal son or the older brother, when it hits close to home that you are capable of committing the most heinous crimes apart from God's grace, when you can sing, it was my sin that held him there. Have you had that moment? You know that moment when the prophet Nathan came to David after David sinned? When he came and told him the parable about the sheep? And David says, ah, whoever did that, put them to death. And Nathan says, you're the man. Do you know that you are an enemy this morning? If you don't know that, then Jesus would tell you you are not a Christian. Because to be a Christian is to know that you are an enemy of God, reconciled to Him, 
only by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he ends this passage with great hope, saying you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the Greek word here is a future participle, meaning you shall be perfect. It is both a prophecy and a command. Christian, if you know Christ, you shall be perfect. And Christian, because you shall be perfect, you should love your enemies. Now as we turn towards this table, this table is meant to infuse this grace of being an enemy who is loved into our hearts. All throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to love our enemies. And in Romans chapter 12, we are told that if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That is what Jesus does for his enemies, us, at this table. You know, all throughout the life of Jesus, he fed the 5,000 with bread. The same crowd, he would shout, crucify him years later. He fed Judas, the very one who would betray him. He gave the cup to Peter, to the one who would deny him. And he extends his bread, his body, his life for all of us this morning. That's why Jesus says in John 6 that I am the true bread from heaven. And whoever comes and eats of the bread of life shall not hunger And you know the response? Sir, give us this bread. And earlier in John 4, when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well, he told her, I will give you water, springs of living water. And you know what her response was? Sir, give me this water. This table is for all those who acknowledge that they are an enemy of God and trust in Jesus Christ alone for this salvation table is not given to this church or this denomination. So if you acknowledge your sins, trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, have been baptized and are a member in a good standing, then please come to this table. If you want to describe yourself as a Christian this morning, then let this table pass you by. But we're really glad that you're here. And don't feel slighted. We want to offer you the one to which the table points, Jesus himself. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to reflect on Your words. Lord, let us feel the conviction under the Holy Spirit that we are enemies of God, that we are fallen, that we are sinful, that we are depraved, that apart from God's grace, we are capable of of any of the most heinous sins that we could imagine. Father, we pray that by grace and through faith as we approach this table, that we would accept Your body and Your blood so that Your grace would be infused to our souls so that we would know that we were once enemies. Now we are Your sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, 